So with me today, I have Tim Dirix, who is the CEO of Voxdale. Tim, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you got to be the CEO of Voxdale? I'm an engineer from background. I spent around 10 years in the renewable energy sector, um, offshore wind energy sector. Founded a software startup and then handed over to one of my co-founders who's still leading the company and uh, did a couple of years management consulting. And after that, I really started thinking about what, what do I actually have. You feel it a little bit. It's a, it's a trajectory with different side roads. Really started to think of what, what do I actually want and what are my skills and what, what I'm good at. And one of the things was actually uh, the ideas was I don't I didn't want to found another startup right? because that's it's much less fun sometimes than many people say it's it's uh, it can be uh, probably not all so close to my personality as such. I felt more for looking for a company and and looking for a management buy-in. Certain stage I started having a good discussion with Kuhn, who founded Voxdale around 15 years ago. And Kuhn is a, a real entrepreneur. He's a person that has founded not only Voxdale, but also quite some spin-offs of Voxdale, of around Voxdale or uh, co-invested in spin-off companies. And he still had a lot of ideas in his head to found new companies. And this was becoming a much bigger conflict with his role as CEO of Foxdale. So at that stage, we started discussing and, and we came to the conclusion that maybe it would be a good idea if I took over as CEO and took an investment in the company because I also wanted to have some skin in the game. I think it's sometimes important if you lead something that you also feel when things are going well, but also when things are not going so well. So as such, I, I became CEO of Foxdale uh, since now uh, a little bit over two years. It's July 2020. I joined the company as CEO. Kuhn is still in the company as a shareholder, but not actively anymore operationally. So he's shareholder. He's part of the board of directors. So that's a bit my background and how I joined uh, this, this fantastic company, Voxdale. So I guess that means even though you're not directly involved in setting startups up anymore, you do help quite a lot of startups out. I guess that a big part of what you do at Voxdale is helping medical startups get their products to market. Is that a fair assessment? So we do help a lot of startups. Our, around 80% of the work we do is for startups. I think 60 to 70% of our current activities are in the medical space uh, where we help medical device startups. Typically, Companies come to us when, or they have an idea. It can be a doctor or it can be a nurse or somebody else. Mostly there are people that actually work in the space and know very well what the needs are. They come to us with an idea or a new concept or something they, they're struggling with. Or it can also come from a technology, for example, university or research institutions that have found something like a biomarker, for example, that can detect some, some aspects in, in the blood. But then they think, okay, we can do this in a laboratory setting, which is fantastic. But this needs to be, be used, for example, in a hospital environment. So that, that requires a lot of different usability sets, setups. And then they come to us and ask, can you please help us build that device? And that's a bit where we typically act as a company. I guess some of those ideas are really great, but there's a huge distance between getting them to patients, isn't there? And I get the attrition rate of those kind of medical device ideas and startups is huge, I would imagine. And I guess one of the things you're doing is, is helping people on that pathway by using engine simulation and your expertise into not being one of those many, many medical device companies that folds before these fantastic devices ever hit the treatment table. Definitely. I, I, we never promise to people that we are going to bring them actually to the markets. 
our track record is quite good until now in that perspective. But like you say, uh, bringing a medical device to the market is a, is a path with many, many pitfalls. There are many hurdles actually to get there. I think one of the first things we always start with is what is your actual go-to market? We don't do that all by ourselves. We have some partners in that. Really, really important. So that's one of the biggest pitfalls, I guess. In which kind of field are you playing? And then looking a little bit further, of course, our core business is building a device that actually patients or doctors or nurses actually want and can use, which is critical, or doctors in which which setup you actually want to use it. That's one. And second of all is building actually a medical device that can scale, that you can actually produce on a scalable on a scalable business. And in that perspective, because this conversation is also, of course, about what we do with simulation engineering in, in there, we use often simulation engineering in that process to do virtual prototyping. Because what we see is that building a scalable device, it's probably easier to build a, a small prototype. Sometimes that's not too difficult, building a prototype. The real challenge sometimes is to build a device that you can produce on a scale with always the same quality to actually produce that, produce it at a certain cost because, of course, in a hospital environment and in a medical environment, cost is a relevant factor. And uh, simulation engineering has proven to be very, very effective in that perspective. Certainly, when you look at, for example, bringing a prototype to a full-scale product, being able to simulate which kind of quality boundaries you can actually accept is a huge added value for us. Uh, but also bringing first-time right solutions to the market. First, being able to build a virtual prototype before building a physical prototype, because physical prototypes in many cases are very expensive, take expensive uh, setups. Uh, test setups and with virtual prototyping, you can actually gain a lot of insights and again, gain a lot of value as, as engineers. So, so this is where this idea of, of in silico development comes from. Some of the people listening to this podcast won't perhaps be uh, as experts in Latin as you and I are. So could you just explain a bit about what in silico means in the context of medical device development? What we all know is I think everybody knows what a, what a test on a mouse is. Yeah? We heard about animal tests. I think we heard about it in different contexts. And typically what you do in, in building a medical device, you first do it in a laboratory setting where there's no people that are alive actually involved in that. So it's just a laboratory testing. You try to take some tissue from, from whatever. You try to test it and see if it works. In many cases, the second step would be testing it on a mouse. Or other animals, I think you also have, you have mouse and then you have sometimes monkeys and already there you feel already a little bit of an ethical question of hmm, what's going on here? Is this something we still want to do? There are many discussions also in the academical world about this. And then, of course, the last test is actually in a human where the ethics are, of course, much more complex. We see more and more that with the tools that are available out there where you can mimic more and more how... For example, some aspects in, in a human body or an animal body are, you can mimic that in a computer environment. Everybody knows what gaming is. You see that more and more looking like real, the real world. Companies, for example, like Siemens have been able to also mimic the physical environment in a computer program. And that is exactly what we call in silico trials. We try to build some parts of, for example, a human body in, an, in a computer model. 
you get data out of the real world. You put that in a computer model. You try to use that data to build a as accurate as possible computer model. And then you start doing tests. And that is in silico. In silico is the silicon, silicon valley. We all know that it actually comes from there. It's not Latin. It comes by, it's a bit Latin, but it comes more from the silicon chips that are all in our computers that we actually use as a sort of a testing environment. The first and most central principle of kind of, of medicine is first do no harm, isn't it? And so when you're testing on animals or humans, it's really important that either you do no harm or perhaps with animal testing, you minimize it. But that kind of goes against one of the central tenets of engineering is engineers, we like to break things, don't we? That's how we find out where the limits of things are. And that's how we push the boundaries back. So I guess in silico development is a way of kind of getting around that maximum of first do no harm because nobody really minds if you hit if you hurt some some simulated human being or simulated animal is is that true definitely yeah i think there are two aspects which are super valuable with regards to uh, simulation engineering i think indeed engineers try to break stuff look boundaries and i think in a in a in a virtual environment you can break basically everything you want you can see what what the boundaries push that pops into the second thing where engineers are are always curious on the why. Why is this not working? Why is it working? What's going right? What's going wrong? Really looking at to understanding the problem. And if you can do that in an silico environment, you can imagine you can just make different frames. You can look into the problem. You can have much more details on where the actual issues lie. Of course, the challenge always is to have an engineer that can actually do interpretation. I think... In engineering land, everybody knows the, the phrase shit in, shit out. Pardon my French for that, but I think uh, of rubbish in, rubbish out. It's typically a, a very important one. It's super powerful tools you can use there and gain, gain a truckload of insights, but you need to be a trained engineer to actually do that. You need to see what is actually going on. What have I put in here and what am I getting out and what am I learning from this? Eh? And what does this mean for my final product development? That are the two biggest added values and, and, and benefits of working with in silico. And then because simulation at the end of the day is just a tool, isn't it? And it's up to the engineer to imp- interpret those results and, and make something useful. You presented at the, the Sim Center conference in Berlin and, and the things I took for your presentation then was this maximum of fail fast, fail often. And that's kind of what, what you do. Now, failure is not always a positive word is it but actually if you look at human experience i think we learn more from failing and from breaking things early in the process than we do from from instant success could you explain a bit more about that kind of fail fast and fail often philosophy that you employ at voxdale i come from an environment in my training and also the first couple of years i i I worked as an as an engineer i worked in an environment which was more of the construction industry and failing there is not an option eh? because then human lives uh, are in are in danger. And 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 of course, an offshore wind you can also imagine these are assets of a couple of millions of hundreds of millions of euros. Failing there is not really an option. So it's basically security, security. You put different factors on it to be really, really sure that everything you engineered will not fail. Eh? And with Voxdale, we're completely in a different field. We're in a field where we build new products eh? and. There, we truly believe that you can only know what a boundary is when you have passed it. And, and passing in this case means failing and breaking something, something doesn't work. And then you know, okay, here's my boundary. And that is important because it's super easy to build a product which is way too expensive, 
way too big, way too robust. But knowing when you want to bring that product to the market, you will never get a product market fit. A product market fit comes when you also have a product that's actually just doing what it actually needs to do, not more, not less. And that's why we really believe in failing a lot, failing fast, trial and error. We do that with a huge prototyping workshop where our, our engineers are day-to-day -day trying, testing, failing, trying, testing, failing, and learning as fast as possible. And looking for those edges to get that right product out of in the market. And simulation engineering is a huge added value there because sometimes... We also have to be honest, it's just too expensive to fail <laughs> in a physical world. And it's also sometimes too difficult to fail in a physical world. Sometimes you need, for example, to do tests, our big camera setups with very, very expensive cameras and then images that, that require a huge lot of data to be able to actually identify what's going wrong in a certain setup. And then if you can use stuff like in silico, do that in a computer model, it's, it's, it's of course... A huge added value. But that's why we truly believe that failing fast, failing early, a little bit what software developers uh, teach us and how they work, we also try to do that as much as possible in a physical environment. And I guess in the medical industry, it's even more important to get that innovation done early because once you get to the stage of regulatory approval and clinical trials, really at that stage, your designs are fixed, aren't they? There's, there's not much more scope to change things once you get to that stage. So it's important for you guys to kind of, I think you've called it simulate to innovate, but to get that simulation, that innovation done really early in the process, because later on, once you're in the proper trials, then there's not much you can change. Is that true? It's the most regulated industry we work in as a company. We also do some work in the space tech environment, which is also super regulated. I think medical is super, very, very regulated, very early stage. You need to start fixing your specs and fixing everything. Failing fast in a very early stage is really, really important. Um, that we also just getting the data, eh? why we made a decision is also really important because what we see in this industry is typically people would go for the first thing that works, which Sometimes in the longer run, when you are five years down the road and have spent a couple of, of million euros on the development, you see and then said, oh, phew, we sh maybe should have gone a little bit deeper in the engineering and make it a little bit more slim or, or maybe try to iterate a couple of things there because we could have maybe made a better product, which is in a medical space very, very relevant. Because at a certain stage before bringing it to the market, you actually need to prove that your product is as good or better than other products already on the market. So you cannot just bring something to the market and get paid back so or get reimbursed. So there's a challenge there to, to try to look actually what, what are the boundaries here in a medical device. Because once you go into the regulatory path and, and starting to fix and, and do design freeze, it takes a lot of time to go back. And that's why we really want to take that iteration loop to do that in a very early stage and try to really iterate a lot on the design and try to look where the actual boundaries are. It's just reality that doing that in a simulation environment is much faster. And speed is really important for a startup. You can also reduce downstream costs with respect to manufacturing, can't you? So one of the examples you presented in Berlin was of a medical device and which when you go to the mold stage, you can spend a lot of money in getting your molds perfect or you can do simulations that help you understand what the consequences are of a slightly cheaper but imperfect mold and understand you know and, and build that into your process is is that something you can do as well R rather than chasing perfection which might be really expensive 
you can use simulation to understand the effects of imperfection and then and then build them into your designs, I guess. Like I said, eh, just simulations really help you to look where your boundaries are also in a production environment, because we know going from prototype to production, the thing you produce is never perfect. There are always, always different kind of boundaries into, for example, injection molding is, in, is a very important one. Eh? You can spend a lot of time in making always the same, same product with the perfect injection molding, which, which is quite relevant in some cases. In some cases, actually going to much cheaper injection molding techniques or suppliers, but actually allowing a little bit of difference in the product and knowing that you will still be within the specs you actually promised, eh? because that's important. Your specs are fixed and you need to be within these specs. Otherwise, you can basically put every 50% of your products that come in, you have to throw it in the bin, which is not the, not the best case as a medical device company. And really looking for these boundaries and, and what, are our, what are the different boundaries we have in a production environment are really important. We did it for a couple of medical devices where we saw we were able to actually bring first-time white solutions to the market and first-time white molds and a little bit cheaper molds also. Because everybody know going to a mold uh, for every hardware company is a big investment. It's an investment of 100,000 euros and more. So that's really a step that you need to be fully sure of. And getting more certainty on that and knowing where your actual boundaries are, really, really important for us. And on that particular product that we were talking about, you, you managed to get to that mold stage probably quicker than ever before, didn't you, I think? The difference was quite significant. I think we did an estimate and... The real development time from concept to mold was 50% faster than, than would be in a normal uh, setup. And the final design mold was 30% cheaper than we'd have in the normal uh, setup. We, we have, we made an analysis by, by an external company and really simulation engineering was vital in that perspective. So it's not only timing, but it's definitely also just on a cost uh, perspective that we were able to gain quite some. We also did it, for example, in a in this disinfection setup. Um, there was a challenge. We were facing a challenge to actually come up with a different kind of disinfection methodologies for a certain device. I cannot go really deeper in what the device was. What we could have done is probably built five or six different kind of in disinfection setups in our workshop and spent a couple of months actually looking into that by very expensive cameras, doing a lot of analysis on that. And we also did that, eh? but we first started with a virtual prototyping setup where we, we tested the disinfection, different disinfection technologies that, that were out there. And we could immediately already say, these three will never work. Eh? We saw it on the device, what we tried, it will never work. Also, there were some boundaries on how fast it should be and what the cost was and which kind of devices and equipment was available there. So which actually allowed us to test only two uh, disinfection technologies. We did that, of course, in a physical environment at a certain stage, but that was very, very useful for us as a company. And we were actually surprised that the first disinfection technology that we thought from simulation engineering was the right one actually also proved to be almost perfect in how we did it in a, in a virtual environment. It was always only... Was virtually, <laughs> in this perspective, virtually a copy of what we actually did which was fantastic to see. So the outcome of all this is ultimately is is that we're seeing medical devices that might never 
have reached patients actually now on the treatment table, you know, in some some cases curing people, in some cases improving access to downstream medical, in some cases improving the quality of people's lives. I think it's there's a really important kind of, aside from the financial point of view of this, there's a really important human aspect is that that, that hopefully the long-scale payoff of this approach is is helping people to live healthier, happier and more productive lives, would you say? Yep, I do agree. And I think we're only on the beginning of what's out there, what's possible. Um, because you see more and more, we see regulatory agencies actually looking into the data that comes out of silico trials. Interestingly, we even had a, a request quite recently from a company that asked us, can you produce some data out of in silico tests to actually kickstart our our AR algorithm, uh, they, they are facing, they, they want to get some data out of certain sensors and then build an AI algorithm on that. And they asked us, can you provide us with some data out of the silico tests? And then we can use that as a sort of a 85% certainty on the first algorithm, the first test to actually get their, their data algorithm kickstarted. And then, of course, they will ask real world data to actually be able to define it, refine it more. But we actually see that we're only at the beginning of, of what, what's potential, what the potential is of this technology, with regulatory agencies more and more looking into the data we actually produce from it. And I'm really sure that most medical devices fail just because of cash flow issues at a certain stage. Yeah, the, the two big valleys of debt you have, definitely in the first stage, if your engineering is not super crisp, you will face cash flow issues before you actually bring a product to the market or bring it to certification. And there in silico is really really a big added value and i think that's a good place to end the podcast so so tim thank you very much for your insight and it's been a real pleasure talking to you thank you tim thank you very much Stephanie.